listened in. It's recording now. Yeah. Is it working now? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. All right. I did. Uh, it's always always interesting when I'm in the process of studying for a class. I will come across things that have, sometimes have no bearing on anything else other than the fact that I think they're kind of fascinating. Uh, so I ran I ran across this one, which I thought was interesting. Taken right. This is a, actually uh, an actual legal brief, actually a, a lawsuit that was filed. Uh, I, you, you don't make these things up. United States Federal Court, General uh, Gerald Mayo versus Satan and his staff. <laughs> Plaintiff filed suit against Satan and his staff for violation of his civil rights. Among the allegations were that Satan had on numerous occasions caused him misery and unwarranted threats, all against his will. That Satan had placed deliberate obstacles in his path that caused Plaintiff uh, plaintiff's downfall. Okay, those of you who've been living for a while, that you remember in the sixties and seventies, they had Flip Wilson, mm-hmm. and Flip Wilson used to always say, "The devil made me do it." This is the legal version of that. You know, <laughs> I know that's good. And and that by reason of the foregoing act, Satan had deprived him of his civil rights. <laughs> now, I thought it was interesting. How would the court respond to this? The court cited several concerns, noting, we question whether this court may have personal jurisdiction over the defendant in this state. <laughs> Some would argue that they do. Because they, no, that's a different <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this would be the Ninth Circuit Court. Thank you. In addition, the plaintiff has failed to include with this complaint the required form of instructions for the United States Marshal for directions as to how to contact and arrest the defendant. Good, we'd like to serve, you know, the, the person you're suing, but you haven't given us directions on how to find it. Again, some would offer directions about where you could... Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Okay, now, that's it. Um, I have to tell you that these these two sections that we're studying today, 18 and 19, we could actually spend the rest of the year probably studying 18 and 19. They are so packed, they were given nine months apart, but they are so packed with incredible doctrine that that I had a hard time kind of sorting through which ones we were going to, that we wanted to address. Uh, I'm just amazed by it. Um, but let me just ahead of that kind of provide some background information because I think this is going to be real critical to what we're what we're talking about, uh, and it has to do with the naming of names in Hebrew. Um, generally, in Hebrew, you're going to you actually have uh, kind of two names as the tradition. You're going to have the your common names. Think about it. Catholicism kind of did the same thing over time. So you would have, have your common name and then you're going to have your Hebrew or covenant name. Okay? Um, and, and anybody grow up Catholic? Same kind of deal? Um, where you're going to have both, both names. And then, so when it comes time to exercise any kind of contract, uh, you're going to actually use that Jewish contractual name. Uh, because this is more of a contract with God. Uh, I remember when uh, a buddy of mine uh, got married 
uh, married a Jewish lady, and we went to the Jewish wedding. Uh, we had a uh, a wild trip through uh, downtown Chicago moments before the wedding. My son and I try to get to his apartment because they had left the ketubah in their home. When the ketubah is the contract, and we had to have the ketubah before we could actually, because the actual marriage ceremony comes with the signing of the ketubah. And then the, the ceremony in the synagogue is the outward manifestation of the contract that's already taken place, if that makes sense. So we, we dashed like crazy through Illinois and found the ketubah, rushed it over to the synagogue, got it there in time so that we could have a ketubah ceremony. And we would then, so I was there when we were reading the ketubah and the, and the contract is being passed back and forth between husband and wife, the signing off on this and and, and the Hebrew names are the ones being used in the contract kind of, uh, situation. Does that make sense? We as Mormons would know absolutely nothing about having two sets of names, our common name, and our contractual name, right? Of course not. So the contracts use the covenant name. And by the way, do we see that throughout history? Was there actual, if you think about the patriarchs, did they have their name name, and then when they covenant with the Lord, that they were then given a second covenant name? Like who? Jacob and Israel. Abram, Abraham, Sarah, Sariah. What about Joseph Smith? Yes, let's get to that one in a second, okay? And by the way, if you're Jewish, you wake up every morning and you're supposed to every day read the Shema. The Shema is in Deuteronomy 6, and, and, and Shema means the name. So you're supposed to get up in the morning and read again the name. O God, He is God, Thou art God, I will have no other gods. Uh, and that is, that's the Shema. Meaning the name, Hebrew for name. Adam and Michael is another one. Noah, Gabriel, Moroni. Uh, uh, Moroni. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> e- Enoch and Raphael. Uh, anyway. So we're going to read, uh, so, so part of what's going to happen here, I need you to see that as the Lord is beginning here with, with his prophet, watch, watch this process about how they do this. Okay, so I want you to turn to D&C 18. Oh, I think, well, hold on here. Let's go to verse 8. Remember, this is given to the, uh, remember the background here, this is given to the uh, three witnesses. And specifically to Oliver and, and David Whitmer saying to them, we're going to need you, and he's going to get into this, we're going to need you to go find the quorum of the twelve. And the job of finding the quorum of the twelve fell to the witnesses. 
Okay, so 18 is actually given to the to the witnesses. Uh, we believe this is just prior to uh, just prior to them receiving the Melchizedek priesthood. Um, uh, by the way, let, let, let me step out of this since it's not going to be part of the lesson. You want? I'm going to start doing side things here. Let me know the circumstances we think now behind the, the what was going on when they received the Melchizedek priesthood. Constable uh, gathered them into his house, and he said to them, "I think you're in danger. Uh, it's not. It's not good. Uh, you guys need to get out of here." And they actually snuck out like a back window, and then took off across country uh, and traveled all night long. And and Joseph describes the fact that uh, as they've been kind of scrambling through the the backwoods, that long about. Don Oliver's exhausted, and he's literally kind of dragging Oliver along. And there's a point at which Oliver says, "Can't go any farther. I'm pooped." And they and they sit down to rest. And and apparently that's the moment when then apparently Peter, James, and John come and bestow the majestic priesthood. Uh, Joseph then says, "The rest of that trip, Oliver seemed to not be so tired <laughs> anymore. They were kind of get up, and they were able to finish the, their trip." So that actually came from a journal entry of a, a man that uh, heard, heard Joseph Smith relate that story. Why did the Lord do that? Do what? <laughs> well, I mean, why, why would you receive something so important under those extreme circumstances? That's a really good question. Why under those extreme circumstances? That would be the moment. That's a really good question. I don't know. Uh, this is given just section 18 is given just prior to that intimating that it's about to occur okay and we know from from a dating kind of thing that it, that it would have happened just prior to June 15th 1829 so we have our time frame and we know where they were and all of the traveling fits apparently with that as well uh, they would have just finished the translation yeah right Could be. That would that that could make some sense, yeah. And kind of symbolically of doing all that you can do on your own. And now that's that moment, yeah, you're symbolically you've now covered everything, you're exhausted, you've kind of got to the end of that, and now here comes the priesthood on top of that. I like that. Okay? Alright. Verse verse eight. So, Marvel, now by the way, so if we're going to look at David Whitmer, we're going to look at Oliver Cowdery, we're going to look at Martin Harris, all of these guys are older or more educated or something than, than this backwoods country boy. And, I, and again, all along the way, even right up most of his life, Joseph is going to be surrounded by people that so often are going to go, really? 
you know, you use that kind of language, or you're, the way that you, I've seen you write, or that, you know, the way you were talking, that's kind of awkward, and, and there's so much of this polishing process that Joseph was such a rough stone rolling down the hill. Okay? And so even for these young brethren to go, really? I know as much as he does, I think, or I don't know why he gave it to him and not to me. And that's why so often Joseph gave into the persuasions of men, because they could talk him into it, because he knew he was so rough and wrong. So, now, verse 8. And now, guys, friends, witnesses, marvel not that I have called him unto mine own purpose, which purpose is known unto me. Um, it's, like, it's like the old quote of uh, J. Golden Kimball. Somebody asked J. Golden about uh, an apostle that had just been called. And I believe his quote was, Hell if I know, only God would have called him. <laughs> And now, don't quote me. Oh, that's on recording. And now, marvel not that I have called him unto mine own purpose, which purpose is known in me. They couldn't figure it out. It's known in me, but you guys don't know it. Um, Wherefore, if he shall be diligent in keeping my commandments, he shall be blessed unto eternal life. And then here it comes. You ready? His name is Joseph. Now, wouldn't they have known that? Well, of course, Lord. We know his name's Joseph. What's he saying here? Here's his co- here comes his covenant name. His name is Joseph. Now, when he went to the temple, did he get another one? I don't know. But as far as this was known as far back, that's why you go to 2 Nephi 3, and, and you have the Lord declaring... His name shall be Joseph, and he'll be named after the Joseph and after his father. I can always remember 2 Nephi 3 because there are three Josephs. Um, So he will be known as Joseph. And this will be contracted. It's what he's going to be known throughout all the animals. And there's a covenant. So anytime that the Lord starts talking about names, he's not just pointing out something. There's a covenant and a contract about to take place. You guys don't understand why, but first of all, his name is Joseph. So here's the covenant. Now watch how he does this. Um, now, now hop down to 21. Because he's going to tell them when they go out to find, as they start preaching and everything. Uh, first of all, 20, contend not against other church, save it be the church of the devil. We could take probably a whole lesson on what the church of the devil is. Um, It's one of those things we're kind of hopping over a little bit. 21. Take upon you the name of Christ and speak the truth in soberness. Because, look at um, 23. Behold, Jesus Christ is the name which is given... Of the Father, and and there is none other name given it where man, whereby man can be saved, and that's important because look at twenty five. Wherefore, if people coming along do not know the name, then what happens? By which they are called, they cannot have a place in the kingdom of our Father. 
So in other words, part of this ancient practice is saying, there's going to be a name, I'm going to give you a name. When, when you start speaking about names, there's a contract underway here. I have contracted with Joseph. Joseph is contracted with the name, the name of God, the Son of God. And there are going to be things that go back and forth. Now, if we look at this, though, do we ever, do we ever, in the process of our lives, ever kind of take upon ourselves His name? We, we do that about when? Every week. Okay, so we actually covenant and promise that we're going to do what? We'll remember Him, keep His commandments, and that we are. Yes. We are willing to take upon ourselves His name. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Okay, so now let's, let's back up. Here's, here's Elder Oaks talking about this. One of the obvious meanings of taking upon ourselves His name renews a promise we made when we were baptized. Okay, don't we sometimes say to little eight-year-olds, you're now a member of His church, you're now supposed to be a good example... You're, you're different. You've somehow changed. You're a member of the church. Okay? As a second obvious meaning, because he's going to give you about four layers of this. A second obvious meaning, we take upon, our, upon us our Savior's name when we become members of the church. A third meaning appeals to the understanding of those mature enough to know what a follower of Christ, that a follower of Christ is obligated to, to serve him. As we're serving, how do we take upon ourselves his name? How does that work? Yeah. We become his representative. Yeah, meaning what? That uh, we act in his name. Meaning we were, we're going to do everything that he would do and that we would become his proxy. Yeah. He can't be here. I will do it. Uh, not just the things he will do, but the way he would do it and why he would do it. That's the hardest part for us. So often we spend most of our life being obedient and we may be grumbling about having the home teacher visit teacher, grumbling because we have to go to another meeting or something like that. And we're there, we're doing it, but then if we're going to really then become like him, ultimately we get to the point that we love and serve for the same reason that he loves and serves. Our desires become one with his. Does that make sense? We're taking upon him. And I think that's kind of what it is that Alma is talking about in Alma 5 when he talks about, have you received his image in your countenance? You have become him. You blow like he does. You love like he does. You serve like him. You've not just taken on his name. You have taken him on. Does that make sense? But he's going to covenant with you first to do that. Who do I? Who am I going to have be my proxies? Who's going to do what I do? My people who carry my name, and I will give my name to those that I've covenanted with. Okay. Now, there's a there's a different there's another layer though. It is significant, Elder Oak says. That when we partake of the sacrament, we do not witness to take upon us the name of Christ. We witness that we are 
willing to do so. I don't know if you ever thought about that in the sacrament of prayer. Okay? What would be the difference? We thought we had, right? And in a sense, we have. He's saying there's a deeper level at which we are willing, meaning we haven't yet. Right? What would that be? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I or we haven't yet as completely as we're going to. Well, I think yeah. that every week there's the question of whether or not we're going to take the same upon us that week. Maybe the week before we tried real hard. This week we're going to try real hard. I wasn't a very good representative this week. I, did, I didn't do that well this week. Start over. I like that. Yeah. Well, there's certainly covenants that we haven't taken on yet that we should partake of in order to take the temple covenants. Yeah. Isn't it other than that David talked about that where he talks specifically about sacrament and how we're just willing, that's what we covenant to do, but as we go to the temple. That's right. So, so that's why the, the, the beauty of the layers of this thing is the fact that we have already done so at a variety of levels. But it's preparing us for that ultimate taking upon ourselves our name, where, where the greatest, most powerful covenant occurs. Okay? And that's, that, and that's what he's saying. Willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ can therefore be understood as a willingness to take upon us the authority of Jesus Christ. According to this meaning, by partaking of the sacrament, we witness our willingness to participate in the sacred ordinances of the temple and to receive the highest blessings available through the name, by the authority of the Savior when he chooses to confer them upon us. And why we know that happens is that's the point at which we are then being given a covenant name. That, 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 that is the ancient practice of covenant Making. In fact, I would take it one step farther to say when we talk about you, we're going to go to the temple and receive our endowment, and then an endowment is a gift of what? His name. Does that make sense? Because if we have, if we're going to go to the temple and receive an endowment of His name, you're going to be endowed with His name, meaning. And again, we we'll go back to the ancient Hebrew practice. Uh, to be given a name is to be given power. That's what it is. If you name something, you empower it with the attributes of that name. A name means something. You don't just name somebody, it just comes. If you're going to give them, for instance, the name of, of an ancestor of yours, you want them endowed with all of those attributes of that uh, of that ancestor. Like in, in the, my, my uh, oldest son, David Hinckley, uh, we decided we wanted to endow him with a little, act, little added something, so we named him David LeGrand Hinckley. You know, so that he would have that extra, and, uh, and my daughter, Candy, uh, mix of Kevin and Sydney. But, but less than think you're going to get it all from us, it's Candy Eliza. Because we wanted her to be able to track back to Eliza Smith. Okay? 
And, and we do that to say, yeah, I give you a name so that you will have added power from that. And, and the temple was meant to be that. If, if you're going to be given a contract name, it means to Joseph, you are going to be named Joseph, not just because of your father, but because of Joseph. You are going to be the seed of Joseph, and the power of Joseph, and the covenant of, the, of Joseph. <coughs> Yeah. So as you go to the temple and you receive that name, it helps you to remember that person and the authority that you were given. Absolutely. In fact, we have in the Book of Mormon an actual experience where this happens. Remember, Helaman, as he's getting ready to die, and he's going to bring his sons, Nephi and Lehi, <laughs> and he's going to say to them, I gave you these names, why? So that you would remember our first fathers and all of that kind of thing. Okay? So, what's happening here, part of this process is foreshadowing the fact that they, the Lord is trying to teach whether there were other discussions at this time for those brethren. I need you to understand something about this rough-hewn prophet. He is my prophet. Here's my covenant between Joseph and my name. And that exists. And because of that, there's power that will flow in this city. And we, this is open to all of us. We have covenant possibilities. To take upon ourselves his name, to have his, his image in our countenance, and to be literally filled with the power of the name. That's why the whole thing is so critical. And it's going to be especially critical when we get into this next section of 19. Yeah. Now, now, building on that, Oh, yeah, that's true. I, 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 I connected that. That's kind of interesting. You remember the, and we, we've talked about it in here, the story of Joseph F. You remember when he's a, he's a young lad on his mission in Hawaii, and he has a dream. Uh, and oh, No, that's not Joseph F. That is George Albert. That, that's George Albert that sees his <clears throat> father, George A. Grandfather. Grandfather. Yeah, he says, what have you done with my name? <laughs> yeah, well, ultimately he's going to say, what have you done? And then he can say proudly, I've, not, I've never done anything that would solely your name. Kind of thing. All right. Let's, let's keep going. Um, that's going to be important as we hop over. Uh, I'm going to give the background to 19 in just a second. But I want to just... Because we're going to go back and forth between 18 and 19. <coughs> So here comes 19. And 19 is going to say, uh, as this incredible section begins, uh, the Lord is going to say, first of all, He's going to tell us what? Who He is. He's going to give us His name. He's going to tell us what His name means. Okay, I am Alpha and Omega. Meaning what? The beginning and the end. And, by the way, so I am A, if we can say it today, I am A and Z. And B and C and D and E and everything in between. Okay? I am Alpha and Omega, Christ the Lord. I am He, the beginning and the end, the Redeemer of the world. 
And then we get... He's actually going to do a little description here. Okay? Now, somebody, somebody's got... Uh, want to start with this, verse 6? Got that? Yeah, okay. Nevertheless, it is not written that there shall be no end to this permanent, but it is written endless. Okay, so now we're going to get this little description, and it's going to come, and, and, you, and you've heard this, but let's look at this. And I want you to think of it in the context of understanding a name. That a name implies power, and a name gives power, and a name describes the person. And, 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 doubt. and part of what it's going to say is, so let me tell you a little, I'm about to unlock one of the secrets of godliness, and it is a mystery. Mysteries being what? Something, we don't Something that just hasn't been revealed yet, right? You're about to get a mystery. Here comes the mystery. And he says, you've read that there is endless torment. Uh, by the way, which is which is really a fun concept through an awful lot of the Book of Mormon. You know, endless lakes of fire and brimstone. Most of the Middle Ages, you're, you're going to be sent into purgatory or something. All of this kind of stuff. So there's six. Keep going. Again, it is written, eternal damnation. And eternal damnation, okay, and you almost get this vision, almost, remember in the, is it Greek mythology of the guy having to push the, the stone up the mountain, and the rock up the mountain, uh, all of his days, okay? Wherefore, it is more expressed than other scriptures, that might work upon the hearts of the children of men, altogether for my name's glory. Okay, keep going. Wherefore, I will explain unto you this mystery. For it is meet unto you to know, even as my apostles. I speak unto you that are chosen in this thing, even as one, that ye may enter into my rest. Okay, now, he's about to say, so let me explain something that has never really been revealed in the history of the world, and here it comes. Okay? Next one. For behold, the mystery of godliness, how great is it, for behold, I am endless, and the punishment which is given from my hand is endless punishment. For endless is my name. Oh. Hold, stop for a second here. So he says, so you've heard about endless punishment. And he says, it is. And you've heard about eternal punishment. And and then he's, then he's going to say, here, here it comes, 11, eternal punishment is God's punishment, endless punishment is God's punishment. Why? Because endless is my name. It's part of my name. I am the endless. Hell has an exit. Hell empties. Hell is not eternal in the sense that it never stops. Hell is eternal in the fact that it's God's punishment and we're going to read about that more in section 19. But it's built into my name. If you understand that these are two other names for me, then you understand the, who I am, how I work, but I can then describe it as endless punishment. And it works because now uh, you're going to understand better what, what I'm trying to say. Yeah. In the Book of Mormon, it talks about everlastingly too late. Yeah. So would everlastingly maybe be his name too? Ah, what do you think? Because it does talk in the in that that if we don't that this is the day to prepare to meet God, and that if you don't do it, it will be everlastingly too late. Yeah, hell never stops because they never change. 
for some. Because God is forever mad. <laughs> it's that they never change. Yeah. And, and, and see, that, that's why, but I, that's why I think the beauty of this is finally understanding that at some point the payment has happened, except for those that are in outer darkness. For everybody else, hell has an end. For everybody else, there is an ending point at which you receive a glory instead of uh, pain. And God's punishment includes endless, endless punishment. May mean damnation, meaning that you don't grow or progress, but endless punishment means glory. Whoa, that's right, Kenny, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Eternal punishment does not mean that the individual will be made to suffer forever. No man will be kept in hell longer than is necessary to bring him to a fitness for serving heaven. Did I say that? What are you reading for me? I just had to Hold on. It's the challenge. Okay. And what's his first name? James. James Challenge. To hell there is an exit as well as an entrance. A place prepared for teaching, disciplining those who have failed, who failed to learn on earth. Eternal punishment does not mean that the individual will be made to suffer forever. No man will be kept in hell longer than is necessary to bring him to a fitness for something better. Isn't that cool? God's endless punishment is his name and it is incredibly merciful. To that, I would add, and no one will remain in a hellish emotional state any longer than is necessary for them to be purified enough to abide that glory where they're going to spend eternity. Yeah? Well, you know, I've often wondered because we're told that on Judgment Day we'll be judged for interactions, and no. yet we're told that children that have gone straight, yeah. that were born under the covenant, right. Okay, so part of what you're going to understand here, on Judgment Day, and I know that it says we're judged according to our works, okay? But if if we're judged according to our works, what's going to happen to every single one of us when we're judged according to our works? We we all go to hell. We just do. We're not, we can't. We 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 are damned up because, and so that's why ultimately Judgment Day is the process by which we're not judged really according to what we have done. We're judged, we're judged according to what we have become. The sum total of what we have become. Now, we will have done the same ordinances, and we will have served, and we will have done all of those kind of things. But that's what grace allows us, is the ability to be exalted based on what we've become, not based on what we did. And part of that is going to include, for some of us, some eternal or endless punishment, which means if we don't, and we're about to talk about this, and if we haven't repented for some sins, then we must suffer even as he did for them, because there, a suffering is required as part of that. There has to be a pain for breaking a natural, eternal law. Yes, ma'am? She was saying... Uh, 
Okay, so for those under the covenant or died before the age of eight, we know that they, they achieved the celestial kingdom. Okay? Now, those not born under the covenant, perhaps for, especially for those of you who may have kids that were, weren't born under the covenant and all of that, uh, does that mean that because it didn't happen in this life, they will have no chance whatsoever? What does it mean? How are they saved? And, and how will that happen? They are saved through the Savior, but how? <laughs> because they're. Well, I don't know really, but somehow everyone will have the opportunity to have any kind of work done, and I think everyone will have the opportunity to still. Yes. Two parents. Yeah, that, that's why ultimately sealing becomes, especially in the case of divorce, sometimes you get people who get divorced, and it's like. But what happens to our adult children or something who were born under the covenant and now the ceiling is broken? Well, the, the ordinance has taken place. It's there, whether it's in this life or the next. The ordinance of ceiling must take place. And then, then we get to the millennium and everything is about them. Uh, or, or what happens if I, I divorce this guy and I really, really don't like him but we're still sealed and then we're going to get to the celestial kingdom so now I'm really kind of bolted to this guy welded to him forever and I'm going to be miserable <laughs> if i got to live the rest of my eternities with this guy. Well, and, and I hope he like, breaks some commandments so he'll be happy to go to another kingdom but what happens if he, I don't like him and he repented so now he can't be kept out because he kept the commandments so now I really am stuck with him even though he's a nice guy I still don't like him and I can't believe I'm going to be mashed because we were sealed in my head because I was welded like to him to the him forever Yep. 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 A woman, she is, they get divorced, they have been married in the temple, they can, she can request a cancellation without having any prospects of marriage and any potential to be sealed to another person. And the church now is granting those cancellations. It's the guy, for whatever reason, you know, if it didn't work out. So, you know, being sealed to some fallen chains is not. No, no, no. <laughs> the church is kind of just basically saying, you know what? The Lord will take care of it in His way. It's just important that the ordinances take place. That's right. So that the contracts can happen, the power can happen, the blessings can happen. Don't worry about it. But, but it is nice the fact that this is a significant change, and I think, and, and your husband would say better, but I think it's only happened like within the last few months. It, I mean, we're talking about something happening this year. That's pretty significant. Uh, yes, ma'am. Okay, you've heard it say that the Deus Ex Machina that's in a book is where the author comes in and they say something like at the end of a plot when there it looks as though there's no way for it to be fixed. I really believe that Heavenly Father is that. It, it, what does it mean again? It literally means the dog from the machine. So, which is really the author saying the author comes in and kind of saves, kind of saves the whole and thing. And you know, at the end, I really believe God is that a lot of these things that we don't fully understand, He is going to be that day, 
Isn't that great? So, so in other words, I guess all I'm, all I'm trying to get to here is, um, can you see why it is that we could spend like all semester on, on this stuff? Because sometimes I, I hear from some of you and just go, well, Brother Hinkley, that was a little on the deep side today. <laughs> yeah, but, but this is that chance, if you come ready to, to be taught here, there are some things that you'll, we're, we're looking at some deeper doctrines here, but it's, it, it's, it's true, and I bear witness to you, it's true. But isn't the church just amazingly, wonderfully kind oh. and nice to people? I mean, yeah. if I was one of those women, I I just think that would be such a wonderful thing to be able to have that. Well, uh, but not only that. The mercy of the church. And, but, but if you'll also notice, and this is critical, but let, let me just take a step back. I know we're wandering a bit here. Um, we, we were taught, we it's important that you understand, uh, again, when we look at early church history, this is where people sometimes get snagged with church history. They look at it it's like, well, this is, they were doing this, and then we did it, and it changed. And then they did something else, and it changed. And you get this sense, this evolution of the church, and how it's growing and changing to meet the needs and times of the saints. And look at what's happening now. There is another evolution that says, we Divorce is increasing. We need to be, know how we're going to handle this. And now watch the church say, we're adapting, we're growing. That doesn't change the core gospel doctrine principles, but we have to deal with the, with the saints that we're dealing with and give them practical solutions. And, and the, the church continues to evolve and change and grow. Isn't that cool? Okay, yeah. Even if we hadn't been allowed to break that seal, I could not imagine a merciful God making us live with someone that we really did not. Makes no sense, does it? It doesn't. I don't think it all is going to iron out in the end. And by the way, sisters, part of that too is let's say that that you kind of like your husband, but he drives you nuts in a certain, in a few certain areas, and you've had to kind of you love him enough that you put up with the other stuff. Okay, what's going to happen by the time you get to the celestial kingdom? He will be purified, and he will become like God, right? Meaning, all of those little obnoxious habits that we do, they will be gone by then. So you're not stuck with like eternal snoring or something.
Okay, now, and this is actually going to kind of flow into what we're talking about. Yeah. So if we're going to get into this, I want you to go back for just a second. Because here's all the questions. And I don't know if there's a bigger question uh, in, in, the, in the hearts of the saints. I know certainly from my own experience and my own writings. I, I know the answer. There's not a bigger question in the hearts of the saints. Is, did I get an answer to prayer? Was I doing what I'm supposed to do? Was that really the Lord? All those kind of things. Well, listen to some of this. Because now we're going to go back to these brethren in section 18 and 33. Because I, I need you to, because if, if I were to ask, if you're trying to get an answer to prayer, if I were going to ask how many of you have actually heard the, the voice of the Lord... That would be that would be nice, wouldn't it? Because sometimes you say, wouldn't it be nice if it's like, you know, the, the experience of Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve in Winter Quarters, when the question was, should we reorganize the first presidency? And they've been out to Salt Lake, and then they come back, and so now they're back in Winter Quarters. They got the Quorum of the Twelve. Should we reorganize the first presidency? And the voice of the Lord speaks unto them, and the house, the cabin in Winter Quarters shook. It just shaken enough that there were people that came running that thought there had been an earthquake. And they said, no, it's just the voice of God speaking to the twelve, saying, yes, reorganize the first presence. Okay, and, they, and of course they did. But listen to this. And then, then let, let me ask you the same question. Verse 33, I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, have spoken it, these things. These words that I've given in this revelation are not of men or of man, they're not of Joseph, but of me. For, and this in close, it is my voice which speaketh them unto you, for they are given by my spirit unto you, and by my power you can read them one to another. Now, I'm going to tell you that that has two meanings. Um, If... I, I've, I've got it, uh, but you're welcome to hop over to section 128, verse 20. 
This is this is Joseph writing in. Uh, he's in a cramped attic in a house in Nauvoo that was just down the just down the hill from the Nauvoo Temple, and he's in hiding. And we get this magnificent 128 that we're going to study probably this time next year. Uh, but he says, and again, verse 20, what do we hear? Glad tidings from Camorra, uh, an angel from, from heaven declaring the fulfillment of the prophets, a voice in the wilderness of Fayette, Seneca County, declaring the three witnesses to bear record, the voice of Michael. Then he's going to say verse 21, and again, the voice of God in the chamber of old father Whitmer in Fayette, Seneca County. We heard the voice of God speaking to us in the chamber of Father Whitmer's house in Fayette. Remember last week I showed you a picture of that chamber. This revelation, 18, apparently, from what we can gather, was given at least either backed up by or possibly the entire thing by the voice of God. At some level, depending on which person I read, suggests that either the whole thing was, or at the very least, God's voice came and backed up what it is that Joseph was giving in Revelation. But in some very powerful way, the voice of God gave us section 18 verbally. As opposed to the Savior, God. Jesus Christ would have given. This would have been the voice of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now... So that, that's one layer, that sometimes to these brethren, they actually heard the voice of God. Certainly we know what happened for the three witnesses when they, when they saw the plates. Uh, and there, there are those moments when they actually get these words. Yeah. Can you clarify, you mean that they physically heard the voice of God? Yes. Yeah. Versus whether or not Joseph heard it. Well, hold on. Okay. Most of the time, exactly right, Kimberly, that a lot of times this is... The voice of God speaking to Joseph, who is then speaking them slowly, and then Oliver or whoever's translating will then slowly write out Sidney Riggin. Apparently, in this case, for section 18, what we're getting is some measure of the actual voice that all everybody in that room heard. In a very physical, tangible way. And we're getting that, and he reveals that in section 128. Okay, but I want you to read this another way. Because let me ask you again. Have you heard the voice of God? <coughs> Look at this again. These words, verse 34, are not of me nor of man. Not of men or of man, but of me. 35, it is my voice which speaketh them unto you. For they are given by my spirit unto you. And by my power you can read them one to another. If you stand in the pulpit, in sacrament meeting, and you read the words of God from the scriptures, and the Spirit bears witness to you that it's true, and it bears witness to your hearers, what has just happened? They have heard the voice of God. As clearly as if the room had shook and we actually were hearing His voice. We're hearing the voice of God. On a, on a morning when you're sitting there reading the scriptures and you're struggling with something and you're reading it and the Spirit fills you that this is true, you are hearing the voice of God at that moment. So interesting that if you're sitting in a chapel listening to somebody who's speaking at the pulpit, 
asking if it's that the need of those listening is so great that they've I I like I like your answer better. <laughs> I mean just stop you know, could be either way, just I like your answer better. Thank you. Okay. Now we got twenty minutes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm always interested in the, the institute class that we do the morning after general conference. And you guys all listen basically to the same general conference topics. And then you come in and, and, and you'll be like, oh, Elder Bednar's talk just blew me away. And I got this, this, and this. And the person sitting you next to will be like, I was sleeping through Elder Bednar. <laughs> or, or I was listening to Elder Bednar. I didn't get that. And somebody else says, oh, well, you know, what, what uh, President Uchtdorf said here, you know, I didn't remember that. And you're right, sometimes the Spirit knows which part of that to draw on and, eat, and or be fed, and maybe you didn't even consciously know what it is that you were picking up. And the Spirit is the mediator, and it, and it speaketh the groanings that cannot be expressed, to use Paul's phrase. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely it. Okay, now, let's go back, because I, I want to kind of finish with this. Back to, back to 18. This is the one that we all know, and it was actually quoted over the weekend. Because he's going to go do this whole contracting thing. Thou art Joseph, here's Joseph, I am God, endless is my name, the contract is in place, he's going to do that with you, I am God, you're going to take on my name, uh, and so now this contract, for those contractual people, there, which is all of us, here's some things that you need to know, both about you and about the, the 12 year olds in your Sunday school class that are driving you berserk. And your kids that don't want to get ready for school. And and the neighbor that plays their music too loud. And all of this. Okay? Here it comes. He's going to say, remember, verse 10, the what? The worth of souls is great. In the sight of God. For behold, the Lord your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh. He's going to tell you about it in a second. He suffered the pain of all men that they might repent and come unto Him. He's risen. And how great is His joy in the soul that repented. Now, here, that's my question. Especially for those of us that struggle with self-esteem stuff or struggle with things that have happened in our lives that we regret. Here's the question. How much worth does your soul have to God? How great is that worth? Let that question hang for just a second. 
because I want to now give you the background to 19. And then suddenly 19 should take on a much different light. We've talked about Martin Harris. Martin Harris is as human a, a person as we have in all of Meaning, he managed to hit all the highs and lows and ups and downs of goods and bads. Martin Harris uh, will be judged on what he became. I'm glad I will be judged on what I become, not what I have done. Martin Harris struck over and over and over again. Um, and this is one of those moments. All of us have our good moments that we're proud of and our bad moments that we wish the Lord would forget. We have our good moments we put on resumes, our bad moments we figure out how to lead out of our resumes. This is, the, this is not one of Martin Harris's greatest moments leading into this. Somebody look, when was, when was Section 19 given? Isn't it June 19? March 1829? 1830. 1830. Where are we at in 1830? Church is organized. Church is organized in just a few weeks. It'll be April 6th, so this is just prior to that. Where's the Book of Mormon? What has happened here is that the Book of Mormon is now almost done. We're ready to go. The people of Palmyra have seen pieces of the Book of Mormon because there was a guy coming in uh, that was copying. He would, they, would, they would do the typesetting Monday through Friday. Uh, this guy would come in on Saturday and Sunday, would steal parts of this, and was putting it in a newspaper um, and under the, uh, the, the uh, pen name of O. Dogberry. And he was and he was publishing parts of the Book of Mormon uh, on the weekend. The weekend, uh, the brethren uh, Hiram told him to stop. Mark Harris told him to stop. Oliver told him to stop. He told him to get lost. They go they go back down to Harmony. They get Joseph. Hey, there's a guy publishing already publishing the Book of Mormon. He comes up. He he has a major confrontation with this man in uh, in the office and. Uh, Joseph will have to threaten legal consequences if he does, because they copyrighted the Book of Mormon. You can't, you can't be doing this as a copyright infringement. And they finally get him to stop. But now, so he stops. But by now, people of Palmyra have started to see the Book of Mormon. They see kind of what it is. And they gather together, and they have a town meeting, and they make a solemn pledge that nobody will buy the book. Nobody's going to buy the book. And Martin Harris, who pledged his father's property went berserkos. That's a clinical word. <laughs> As a highly trained professional, I can use highly trained clinical words, and he went berserkos. Uh, so, here is, here is from Joseph Knight Sr. When Martin Harris learned of the planned boycott, being aware he would lose his farm if the book didn't sell, he went to Joseph in Manchester and demanded a revelation from the Lord. Joseph Knight Sr. later gave an account of that meeting. He came to us and says, The books will not sell for nobody wants them. Joseph says, I think they will sell well. Says he, I want a commandment, a revelation. Remember on our last one we were talking about the Lord says, Basically, no more. Well, he's about to say no more again. 
I want a commandment. Why, says Joseph, fulfill what you've got. But, says Martin, I must have a commandment. Joseph put him off, but he insisted three or four times that he must have a commandment. In the morning, he got up and, and, and said he must have a commandment to Joseph and went home. Probably slammed the door. What does he mean by a, a revelation. He wants a revelation like the other ones that he has gotten so far. He wants a revelation. Okay. Okay. What do I do? Because I'm about to lose my farm. And uh, so this is not one of Martin's greatest moments, right? He was panicking. He should take some Xanax and relax. <laughs> She, uh, he was going to go home, yeah, because she's probably also, she's the one, she, yeah, ooh, and we'll get to that, we got 10 minutes. That's going to be addressed in section 19. Uh, okay, so listen to this. So at that moment, how does the Lord respond? Along in the after part of the day, Joseph and Oliver received a commandment, DNC 19, which is in the Doctrine of the magnificence that is section 19 about the Savior's... This is the only first-hand account, the autobiographical account from the Savior of what he went through in Gethsemane. This is the only one. Everything else is other people writing about it. This, are, this is his words, what he went through during the atonement. And it comes on the heels to Martin Harris. Now let me ask again, how great is the work of a soul? That this power that is 19 would come to a man at his worst moment, not his best, at his worst. And it would be given to this man and, and there's this, this mystery of godliness is given in this context to Martin Harris is amazing to me. It gives me an idea that despite me at my worst, the Lord still sees my soul for what it is and will unlock to me the powers of heaven if I will but listen at my worst. And in some ways, to me, this parallels, this whole experience parallels the Savior only on a variety of occasions that's recorded in the New Testament told the people that he was Jehovah. And one of the people that he unlocked that mystery, I am Jehovah, I am the great I am. And who does he give it to? In Samaria. At the well. To who? A woman that by a Samaritan woman, Jewish rabbi man, shouldn't be, should, that's a greater distance social caste wise than anything we could come up with. It's on par with the lady with the issue of blood that we were just talking about, who is unclean. Okay? He's going to give this knowledge that I am the great I am, I am Jehovah, and he's going to give it to a Samaritan woman at the well. And what do we know about her? She's living in sin. 
And she's just coming out there, and here comes this magnificent doctrine. And you might have a tendency to say, well, we're not supposed to cast pearls before swine. Was she swine? No. Not to him. Not to him. Because he knew she would hear it and respond. Why would he give this powerful section 19 that's almost too reverent to read? Why would he give it to Martin Harris on his worst day? Does that say something to you about how the Lord saw Martin, even at his worst? That he would give him this, and knowing how Martin would respond. Okay? Because now we're going to get to Martin, and if you can see it through Martin's eyes, now if you go to section 19 and you read... Starting with 16, I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. And here it comes. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain. That that term, to tremble, think about his physical body handling the load. For most of us, and I love the way Elder Callister put this that says his pain bucket was so much bigger in the fact that most of us would begin to have this kind of pain descend on us and we would pass out. His physical capacity to handle more pain to the part that this magnificent being is trembling in pain uh, and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit. Think of the wounding to this magnificent spirit to have to experience the the dark, evil thoughts of all the evil deeds that have taken place. And would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Then he's going to say to Martin in in the latter half of verse 20. Lest you suffer these punishments of which I have spoken. Of which in the smallest. And and listen to all of us. I mean this ought to mean something to us I think. Which in the smallest. Even in the least degree you have tasted. At the time I withdrew my spirit. Think about your own life when you have done something you shouldn't have. Or you allowed the spirit to kind of drift away because you got casual in your relationship. He said, you have, that's the least little particle of what I felt. And it happens to you when you feel the withdrawal of my spirit. I'm always amazed when I talk to those that have left the church and the happiness is gone. And for whatever happy face they want to put on it, it's gone. And they know it. And he says, now you've gotten a small taste. And again, he's given this to Martin Harris at his worst. What does the Lord have for you at your worst? Does he still love you? Does he see your soul for what it is at its worst? He does. The worth of a soul is great in my sight, he says, because I know you. And I know your capacity for Godhood. 
and exaltation, even on those days when it's your worst. I know who you are. I know what you're capable of. Now, I want you to listen closely then. We got just a, by the way, that's, that's the Martin Harris farm. You want to see where the... Um, now, he's going to give him some directions... And, and I think this is stuff that needs to go to us. Do you, know, do you want to know where Martin was? Do you want to know how, how much he's struggling? Look at 25 and 26. Oh my! Martin, and remember, he, he's, he's married to a dear lady. <laughs> Who would go down to Harmony and trash Joseph and Emma's home looking for the plates? Who would hide and, and conspire for the 116 pages? I assume life at home was difficult. They, they had a dysfunctional marriage. And what he's going to hear is, and again, Martin, and, it, and here it comes, in the same concept you just heard what I went through, first person autobiographical account of the atonement. Martin, I command thee that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor seek thy neighbor's life. Now, I believe, given who Martin ultimately was, I don't think he was murderous. But I do think that he was covered, coveting a lifestyle. It seems better over there. <laughs> it seems quieter over there. It seems less contentious the next house over. And I'm coveting that life. Now, the Lord is going to do something interesting, and I'm going to recommend this to us as well. Because now we can say, don't covet your, your wife or that lifestyle. But now look at the next line. Not only that, Martin, do not covet your own property. Well, if, if I really like my computer, am I really coveting that? I'm not coveting... I know somebody else has got a better computer, but I'm, so I'm not coveting there. I'm happy with mine. Is there a chance that we can covet our stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had... Yeah. Let, let me say this. I'll do this quick. Got a, a, a wonderful client of mine a while back that I was talking to, and I said, and he, in low self-esteem, he's struggling, and, and all those kind of things. And I said, I, I know you well enough that I can ask you a question, and I know what the answer is going to be. He says, okay. I says, and you'll be completely honest with me. He says, yep, I will. I said, you believe that you're really not worth much, and that. Everything you've done is bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, if the bishop called you in tonight and sat you in front of him and said, Brother, we're now instituting the law of consecration. Will you live the law of consecration? What would your answer be? He said, yes. If he said to you, we need your house, and I'm going to, we're going to move you into a two-bedroom apartment, and my friend says, I'll do it. I said, I know you'll do it. Because that's who you are, not who you think you are. 
because that's who you are. And you don't cover any of that because you want to do the right thing and you love the Lord. And he said, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure I'm really willing to accept that. Okay. So let me, let me finish. Let, let me wrap up with this. There's a couple of things more that I want to go, but I want, I want to... Let's finish with this. Verse 39. Magnificent way to end this. Oh, by the way, 37. Can't, can't pass this up. The Lord does an interesting thing here. Now, Martin, speak freely to all, preach, exhort, declare the truth, even with a loud voice. He's about to go Old Testament on us. The Lord's going to go a bit Old Testament here. With the sound of rejoicing, saying, Hoshana, Hoshana, meaning God save us. Say unto them, Hoshana, Hoshana, God save us. Blessed be the name of the Lord God that's right out of the Shema. 39. Behold, Martin, Institute class, any of us, Canst thou read this without rejoicing and lifting up thy heart for gladness? Rejoicing means rejoying. It means joying again. You've joyed in the past. Rejoice. Rejoy again. Canst thou read this without rejoicing? And lifting up thy heart for gladness. He knows me. He loves me. He knows my soul. Even at my worst moments, he knows me and loves me and will save me. Despite my stupidness. Canst thou run about any longer as a blind guide? Or canst thou be humble and meek and conduct thyself wisely before me? Come unto me, thy Savior. And and read the revelation and figure out what I have done for you and how great your soul is to me. That's just magnificent. Not a more beautiful piece of scripture we have anywhere in what the Lord has revealed to us than this. And it was given to Martin Harris in, in his week. I bear you my testimony that the Lord loves us, that He knows the worth of our soul. And even those times when we forget, He knows us. And if we will listen to His voice, we'll hear what He has for us. And most importantly, we will know how He sees us and how He wants to change us and fight our battles for us. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sacrifice and um, all that he's done and meant in our lives. 